Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And man, it is a jam-packed late January, post-divisional, pre-conference championship podcast with my good friend and co-host, Miles Simmons. We're going to be joined later in the podcast by Michael McCambridge. I sort of, he's an author. He's written a lot of things. He wrote a huge tome, A History of Sports Illustrated, 25, 24 years ago, something. And I wanted to have him on because I think I stirred up a hornet's nest talking in my column, writing in my column this week, uh, Football Morning in America, about the very, very sad demise of Sports Illustrated. So we're going to have Michael McCambridge on to discuss that. And Miles, you know, we're going to go over the two games that were just played. We're going to preview in the back half of the pod the two games about to be played this weekend. Kansas City at Baltimore, obviously, and Detroit at San Francisco. But I must say that... In the weekend's games, the thing that really hit me is something that happened in Buffalo. And, you know, this is, it's a rarity in the NFL for the media when after a game, you leave the game to go to the locker room and you got to walk through the crowd. But you have to do that in Buffalo. And I have to say, that was one angry, incensed crowd, you know, screaming out things, a lot of which, 90% of which you can't quote directly (laughs) because of the uh, curse words. But basically, you know, one guy, his plaintive wail was, we will never effing win. And... You know, it's hard to argue with them, you know, to for the for the Buffalo Bills to have been as close as they have with Jim Kelly and now with Josh Allen. There's got to be some sadness. A friend of mine who works up there, Vic Carucci, longtime uh, NFL writer. Uh, I talked to him on uh, Monday or he texted on Monday and he said, yeah, he dropped his grandchild off at uh, kindergarten. And one of the other moms said, yeah, my my husband just said, I'm not going to work today. And as she said to him, a little dramatic. But anyway, that's what I saw in Buffalo. And Miles, I am not joining the party that says Josh Allen is some limited guy and he can't get his team over the top. They're going to be bridesmaids forever. I, I... I don't like that at all. I think it's lazy. Uh, And could he have made better plays? I want to dissect the end of that game. The only thing that really bothers me about it, but welcome to you. And what are you thinking as the game is, you know, as the clock is winding down and you're seeing another excruciating loss for the Buffalo Bills? Well, I I watched the game with a bunch of Chiefs fans, so they were extraordinarily happy that that field goal went right, right. And, you know, it's obviously something that's happened to Buffalo before, not in the divisional round in a higher stakes game than that. But it's interesting, Peter, you know, growing up in Cleveland, there was also that sort of sense of we will never effing win, right? And it's something that the Browns have certainly gone through um, in their own time. But I I I feel for Buffalo fans in the sense that this is excruciating because yeah. you keep going through the same thing again and again and again and three divisional round exits in a row 
is really disappointing for that team. And, you know, I think it is about the team, right? It's not just about Josh Allen and whether Josh Allen is good enough to do it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback that I've ever seen, right? And I I know Tom Brady is Tom Brady, but there is a difference in the skill set and what's going on right now. Like, we are in the middle of this guy's prime and he is still elevating his team week after week after week yeah. in the most critical games and most critical situations. I did not think a month ago, hell, even two weeks ago, that we would be talking about the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. Did I think they had a chance? Sure, because 15 is there. But everybody in that offense had just been so unreliable that you know you see it when Nicole Hardman is fumbling on the one-yard line because it's first and goal, and he doesn't put the ball away. He tries to stretch it out inexplicably. I mean, these are the kinds of things that have been going on. But in this particular instance, the Buffalo Bills made more mistakes at the end of the game, right? So I think that that game is not just about Josh Allen. It's about how do the Bills, as a team, figure out a way to make the right plays in the right situation. I, I, I don't know what the correct answer is for that, but it seems like Buffalo doesn't know it either because, again, three straight divisional round exits. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I'm not going to go panicsville on this team in any way, shape, or form. And I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that I thought of you know, as we were going down the stretch of this game. And, and again, look, Miles, <clears throat> it's, it's impossible to look at a game like this game and to just have one rock solid opinion because it was such an incredible roller coaster. It was. But I'll tell you what really occurred to me as this game is winding down. I thought of Patrick Mahomes back in Frankfurt two months ago, 10 weeks ago, really in early November, when he looked at me after the game and he said, Oh, I promise you, we will fix this offense. He was absolutely certain that he would. And they did. And I thought of that because in the last two games that count, uh, their New Year's Eve game against the Bengals uh, that meant something. The next week against the Chargers didn't really mean much, didn't really mean anything. But in the last two games for Kansas City that have meant something, they've scored 25 and 27 points, and they've gained 373 and 368 yards. And they fixed their offense. They figured a way. They're not explosive, but they're significantly more efficient because Rasheed Rice has become a big, big factor. And because the offense now, they won't say it, but the offense, a lot of it runs through Isaiah Pacheco. So that's one thing. And the second thing that I thought of watching this game is that you have to have a real lazy take to think that Josh Allen is the guy who is responsible for the Bills not being in the Super Bowl. <clears throat> but, 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 there's two plays at the end of the game that will bother me whenever I think of this game. Okay, so the Bills are down 27-24. They know they need a field goal, at least, to force overtime. And they have tried to bleed the clock so that if they do score, the Kansas City won't have any time left. It would have been a tremendous accomplishment, but they weren't able to do it. At the two-minute warning, all right, the Buffalo Bills had second and nine at the Kansas City 26. And you thought, okay, like I was thinking, okay, run one play here. Kansas City will, be, will use its second timeout and then throw for the first down after that. Um, and and then you wherever you are at that point, you're going to have to kick the field goal. So I thought that, and what happens? Josh Allen threw two deep incompletions. 
And I thought to myself, why did you just do that? That's just not really, it's one thing if the guy's wide open, uh, but the throws were off target. And I just simply don't understand why they did that. That is the total of my criticism in Josh Allen of Josh Allen in this game. I thought he was very good to great for most of the game. And I am not going to jump on the bandwagon of people who think that he is not good enough. What say you? I, I think that there's some nuance there, right? And you just laid it out very, very well, Peter, in that Josh Allen played a very good game. He did. You know, I thought that earlier in that drive, a critical mistake that really should have been a turnover if the Chiefs just fall on it was Josh Allen's fumble. I mean, he got a little reckless with the football, and this has happened with Josh Allen more than once, and it has not happened in the two postseason games to that point. And that's – I don't know if it was the moment or what have you, but on that last drive, I thought that Josh Allen could have been better. And then, you know, they recover the fumble. They get the first down on fourth down. Like, all of those things were still really good. Um, But those are the things, yeah, where you get the two missed throws. And I know it looks like Steph Diggs is open underneath. You never know how quickly – defenders are going to rally to something like that if they recognize it and the, the ball didn't end up going there so that also makes a difference but yeah the throws weren't where they needed to be on the last drive right. and also he had a fumble that could have been picked up but I, I guess my issue Peter is a little bit more with the decision making from McDermott and again a game never comes down quite to one play but yeah I don't understand when it's what I think twelve fifty seven on the game clock in the fourth quarter and it's fourth and five from your minus 30, all right? If you want to go for it and you want to be aggressive, I get that. But send Josh Allen out there and do it that way because it, Josh Allen is the kind of athlete and the type of competitor where you could have told the entire Kansas City Chiefs sideline, all right, that he's going to run the football on fourth down yeah. and five, and he still has a damn good chance of picking it up. But if you no give question. the ball to Damar Hamlin – who's not a ball carrier, okay, and you're going for the element of surprise, quote-unquote, whatever you want it to be, like, that's not a good football play to me because it's already – it's just just not. I I don't know. You you have the one guy who you know can do this, and you have one guy who is just not trained in doing this and has never carried the ball in in the NFL in his life. Look, here's one of the things that, in my opinion – the play you're talking about miles just watch the play it's like they were telling kansas city we're gonna fake it here did you see uh demar hamlin lined up to the right to the left in the middle he was just kept walking around it was they're telling hey something's going on here right and it was a it was the choreography by buffalo was awful yes uh and Look, it's one of those things, honestly, if it works, you're a genius. If it doesn't, you're a boob. But the choreography was so bad that they invited Dave Tobe, the special teams coach, to understand that, hey, we're faking it right here. Listen, we got to move on because we got to cover three other games in eight minutes right now. But I want to say one thing about the other AFC game. And Miles, this... This is going to sound like I am being critical of the media uh, who covered that game, and I don't mean to be. I just mean to make an observation. But the big story coming out of that game was that Josh Allen lit up everybody at halftime and said, we are not playing how we should be playing. Uh, Lamar Um, Jackson, you said Josh Allen. Or Lamar Jackson. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Lamar Jackson. That Lamar Jackson, hey, lit up everybody, said, we we got to get our stuff together, all that stuff. You know, over the years, I've heard a lot of those. After a win, I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, we we got rid of the riot act at halftime. And boy, that, that really worked. I mean, what about all the times that you got rid of the riot act and you stink in the second half? Why does it work sometimes and not work other times? So... So I'm only saying that one of the things I wanted to find out is what exactly happened at halftime. And I'll tell you what happened. 
Lamar Jackson went to T. Martin, his his quarterback coach, and he basically said, look, we don't have time to run the plays that you guys are calling. They're zero blitzing us. They're killing us. We don't have time to block these guys for that long. We got to get the ball out fast. We got to run the ball a little bit more and all that. So it goes up the food chain. Tell Todd Munkin. Munkin talks to Lamar. And they agree. We're going to change our play calls for the second half from what we thought we would be doing. They did. I'm not saying they wouldn't have done it without Lamar's prompting. But that was how Lamar was a hero in this game, in my opinion. He said, we've got to change how we're doing things. He did it. They outscored him 24 to nothing in the second half. Lamar accounted for three touchdowns. He was masterful. What did you see as you watched? Yeah, I I thought he was absolutely brilliant in the second half. And I, I think you make a great point of what Lamar Jackson did versus what kind of the narrative is. And right, I know he said this in the press conference. So it's like, oh man, I said some stuff that I can't repeat and la la la. But when you have a quarterback who understands what it is that he's seeing as he plays, and then he runs that stuff up the food chain as he did, like that is the stuff that, I don't know, it's pretty quarterbacky to me, right? When you are yeah. understanding what it is that you're seeing on the field and how to attack it, that's how Lamar Jackson controls games. That's why Lamar Jackson is in all likelihood going to be named MVP at NFL honors in another week and a half or whatever it is. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff that he does that is so masterful. Right. And so yeah. it's not just the throws. It's not just the runs. It's also understanding how to manipulate defenses. That's what makes him such a great quarterback. San Francisco, green Bay, in my opinion, San Francisco is damn lucky to have gotten out of there with a win. Didn't play well. A lot of things about that game kind of alarmed me. Number one, I I thought Kyle Shanahan, who's normally a bold play caller, was timid right before halftime. And I just think when you're playing knowing that, well, at least we can get a 40 or 45-yard field goal attempt from Jake Moody before halftime. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying I'm cutting Jake Moody, but I don't want him on the field when the game really matters. He's not a good kicker. He's He, he might turn into one, but he hasn't been a good kicker this year. Yeah. And it seemed like they were playing for a field goal. That bothered me. <laughs> it also bothers me, and I think it's an exclamation point, what happens when Debo Samuel's not in the game? Maybe it isn't as fatal as when Tyreek Hill isn't in the game for the Dolphins, but it's close. He is so vitally important to everything they do on offense. His absence was felt, and if he's not 70 to 80% at least in this game with his bum shoulder, that... Excuse me, that's going to be a problem for them. The final thing I would say, Brock Purdy worries me a bit. Didn't play well in that game. Didn't play well in the last game that really meant something uh, for the or the big game against uh, the Ravens. And it's just, I thought he played great at the end. His last drive was, was perfect. Uh, but I do think he's opened the door for people to really wonder, can he beat a good pressure defense led by Aiden Hutchinson on Sunday? Yeah, I I have that same question. And, you know, Purdy just did not look comfortable throughout that game. He had the big touchdown pass to George Kittle early, and then it was like the wheels just completely fell off the cart, and they didn't get back on until that last drive in the fourth quarter. But I, I also would say that I was really impressed by Jordan Love you know, throughout the night, I thought he had really, really good command. It's just that in the critical situation, he made the one big critical error that you can't make, right? And throwing the ball across his body. And I understand, look, he's a gunslinger, you know, there are so many good things that he can do. And this is a learning process for him. The Packers got ahead of schedule. I don't think anybody expected them to a B in the postseason and to win a postseason game, especially going on the road to Dallas. So it looks like Green Bay's got a bright future, but 
if you're the San Francisco 49ers, you got to be on your P's and Q's this week because Detroit is going to come in and they're going to be serious. Jordan Love threw two interceptions, and you're right. The last one uh, with whatever, 52 seconds left, whatever it was, was was horrible. You just simply can't make the throw. But I think we have been conditioned recently to think, oh, this guy's not a rookie or whatever he is, a third or fourth year guy. He plays so far beyond that. But he didn't, you know, he, he, I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, Green Bay would have won that game, but wow, he handed it to him both times in plus territory for the Niners in, you know, in, in Niners territory. You get an intercepted twice in the last 18 minutes in your opponent's territory when every possession is gigantic. I, 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 I like Jordan Love. How can you not? But man, he made some big errors in that game. But last game, I thought the Detroit-Tampa Bay game was interesting from the standpoint that what we saw was everybody who said, you know, I really want to see Jared Goff play well again. And that's a little greedy, okay? Because obviously he played very well in that face-off with Matthew Stafford. But I thought what was really impressive is that this was a difficult game for uh, for the Lions coming in because, honestly, when you look at it, you know, the, the, the Bucks came in with nothing to lose. They really did. And Mayfield threw a couple of picks. But Jared Goff, again, he just did not make the big mistake. He threw a lot of passes. He was, whatever, 68%. I, I don't know what he was, but he was somewhere in the high 60s. And to me, he showed that I can come back after a really good game and I can play another one when everybody's season is on the line. And and that's the thing about Jared Goff, right? Can he avoid those critical mistakes? Because the mistakes that were there from 2019 into 2020 were why the Rams ended up moving on from him and going to Matthew Stafford. So He's been playing really well, really at a high level. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, And it's fun to see as somebody who covered him day to day in the beginning stages of his career that he's been able to to do this. Um, But yeah, I, I think going into this week with the conference championship game, you've got Goff going into Santa Clara. That's a tough game in and of itself. Um, but then also, you know, you've got a Bay Area kid kind of coming home, you know, playing in that area again, yeah. uh, you know, after going to Cal. And, and like I said, he grew up in Nevada. So that's something that may or may not affect him. I don't think it'll affect him in a negative way that much. Um, but going against the 49ers defense, a defense he's seen plenty of times over the course of his career, and they've gotten the better of him over the last few times that they've seen him. So it's going to be an interesting challenge for sure. And I'm interested to see how Ben Johnson uses that group of skill players to attack that defense. Yeah. I think it's going to be a very interesting matchup. Um, So miles, we're going to take a break uh, and we're going to get to our guest, Michael McCambridge Uh, 25 years ago. Now he wrote a book called the franchise, a history of sports illustrated magazine. I don't know how many pages it was, but it was a lot. And I really enjoyed the book. And I thought with the news of Sports Illustrated seemingly careening to its ultimate demise at some point fairly soon with massive layoffs last week, I wanted to get, I wrote about it in my column, Football Morning in America this week. And he had a, he wrote me a long email, had a lot of interesting things to say. So I said, you know, let's lean into this. Talk to Michael McCambridge about that and about his beloved Kansas City Chiefs. So we'll be back with Michael McCambridge right after this. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially step up like a boss and save the day or see what life's like under the tree of life 
Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So happy to be joined by Michael McCambridge this week on the podcast. Many of you know uh, Michael McCambridge for his uh, his fantastic books that he's written over the years on so many things involving American sports and American culture. And I wanted to have him on this week because I think I hit a nerve in my Football Morning in America column this week writing about the demise of Sports Illustrated and how if you're a person of a certain age, uh, that means an awful lot to you. And so I thought of Michael as a guest because he wrote a book. uh, What, Michael, 1996, The Franchise? 1997, The Franchise, A History of Sports Illustrated Magazine. Right, right. So... This book now is 25 years old, but I think during the course of reading that book and researching the book, or at least I I found reading the book, I was not terribly optimistic about the future of SI, and not that a lot of people were optimistic because of a lot of things that happened. But Michael, I... I wanted to have you on because you wrote to me in a really good email uh, on Monday. And your whole point in your note was essentially that, and and I'm going to quote from your letter if it's okay. I think people, if anything, are selling it short, meaning the demise of SI. It wasn't just that SI was the gold standard for sports journalism. You can make a case that it was one of the great magazines in American history. It didn't merely set the agenda for sports. It elevated the games. And and you you made the point in this that reading SI made fans more intelligent. And boy, could we use some of that these days when entire segments of sports shows are devoted to things like should you bet over or under on 4.5 catches by Amon Ross St. Brown? Over, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And and I just, that really hit me because there are so many sports shows on today, not just in football, but in everything, that rely on the principle of the hot take or some betting piece of betting information. Mm-hmm. And I really thought after I read this email that I wanted for, because there are a lot of people who don't necessarily understand because they weren't in their prime sports loving years in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And they don't really understand. They shrug their shoulders about the demise of Sports Illustrated. I give you the floor, Michael McCambridge. Were you sad on Friday when you heard this news, and why? Well, maybe sad, not shocked. I mean, as as we have discussed, uh, we've been dealing with essentially a zombie Sports Illustrated for, for years. Um, I think the magazine's decision to change from weekly to biweekly and then biweekly to monthly, that was the, as I think I mentioned, the journalistic equivalent of Roberto Duran's no moss capitulation in the yeah. second year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the magazine attained greatness because it was within the context of a weekly news magazine devoted to sports. Also, not just the agenda setter, but this reservoir of great literary long form journalism, as so many people have pointed out, to the point that even people who were not particularly sports fans used to read Sports Illustrated regularly for a DeFord piece or a William Knack piece or a Gary Smith piece um, because they were first-class writers. But I think 
as important as any of that is this sense that Sports Illustrated allowed intelligent sports fans to remain on top of what was happening in the world of sports in all of its different forms, in obviously the major sports, pro football and college football, pro basketball and college basketball, hockey, baseball, but also how many times did Sports Illustrated introduce you to someone who would dominate the discussion of sports for years yeah. and decades to come? Most American sports fans were introduced to Mike Tyson on the cover of Sports Illustrated, were introduced to Ralph Sampson on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You know, you had that feature Monday. LeBron James. LeBron James, um, Famously, you had that you had that feature on on Monday in Monday Morning Quarterback or I'm sorry, Football Morning in America, um, where you asked people to name their favorite SI covers. And one of them was the Larry Bird cover on the 1977 Sports Illustrated College Basketball Preview. And, And there were good comments on that. But but what nobody mentioned is for most American sports fans, that would have been the first photograph that they'd seen of Larry Bird. Chris Russo actually said that. Yeah. Chris Russo said that. They knew he was white, for instance. They might have seen the name and and just assumed. And so that sense of this one place where all sports fans could gather that would have all the essential sports news of the day and also off-the-wall stuff, like um, this book I just finished about sports in the 1970s. There was a great story, which I remembered reading when I was like 12 years old, that Curry Kirkpatrick wrote about this audacious International Volleyball Association, which was yeah. a startup professional sports league. Wilt Chamberlain um, participated in it after he'd retired from basketball. There were franchises all over Southern California, but also one on the El Paso Juarez border. Um, and Curry Kirkpatrick went down there and wrote about all the stuff that was going on. And that was the sort of glimpse that you had to have Sports Illustrated for, because you weren't going to get that in the sporting news or anywhere else. And that sense of all the stories coming together, and we're going to apportion which ones are more important. If Sports Illustrated still existed as a weekly magazine these days, we would have had a lead story in the last couple months on the rise of the Oklahoma City Thunder and their arrival as a team to be reckoned with in the NBA. There would have been a story about the in-season tournament. Certainly there would have been somebody writing thoughtfully um, about what it was like for Taylor Swift to show up at the NFL games. And we miss having all of that in one place. Um, And with that, I will end this filibuster. Well, I think the biggest thing that you touched on it, but the biggest thing that I am bothered by is that, and look, I might be an absolute dinosaur. My reign might be ending or whatever you would say about me. And I don't necessarily mean just me, but I mean people who write lengthy stories Mm -hmm. are basically unwanted today. And I think... That is the one thing, the fact that the depth that you would hope to be able to find that you always found in Sports Illustrated. And not just in long profile pieces, right. also in game stories. Also, yeah. in, you know, how did the 49ers um, survive the Packers on Saturday night? How did they wind up winning? You would get that story that went just beyond oh, they made this mistake and Jordan Love threw these bad passes, it would go deeper. And even though it came to you four days later, it would tell you something about the game and how the 49ers won and how the Packers lost that you didn't get. And there is this sense we're always looking ahead, always looking at the next game. We've seen we you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a mock draft these days, which is happening in April. But what we are losing is this sense of the really insightful, informative, enlightening game story. And SI was the best at that. Okay, I'm going to tell you something about this past weekend in football that really bothered me. 
I covered both games this weekend. I covered Baltimore-Houston on Saturday and Kansas City-Buffalo on Sunday. And at the Baltimore game, you know, I heard this storyline after the game about this, I guess, what people thought was a dramatic halftime uh, flame-out by Lamar Jackson Mm -hmm. uh, urging his teammates in very strong and blue language Mm -hmm. to get it in gear because they were tied with the Houston Texans 10 to 10 at the half, and we are not losing this game and all that. And, Michael, in my opinion, that is just like chum in the water for the media. And I am not sitting here saying I know any more than anybody else. It's just that I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. And every weekend in the NFL, you can find somebody who said something at halftime and a team went out in the second half and then played better. Mm-hmm. And I always say, because over the years, I say, maybe that is why the team played better. But let's examine fully what happened. Let's examine fully about what happened in the Ravens-Houston game. Mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson did something at the half, something that really mattered, in my opinion. What he did was he went to his position coach, T. Martin, and he said, listen, we don't have enough time. They're sending zero blitzes at me. We don't have enough time to block for these deep pass routes that, that are being called. We got to just get the ball out fast. We got to run a little bit more. We got to do this. We just got to play faster. Mm-hmm. And T. Martin talks to the offensive coordinator, Todd Todd Munkin, who talks to Lamar, and they say, okay, we're changing. Mm-hmm. In the second half, they gain 234 yards. They obliterate Houston 24 nothing in the mm-hmm. second half alone and win 34 to 10. In my opinion, that's a lot more significant than Lamar Jackson saying, hey, you MFers, we got to play harder out there. Mm-hmm. And that to me, Michael, and again, and I'm not saying, well, I wrote that, so I'm right. I happen to think it's right. But my point is the storyline after the game that everyone was talking about, Lamar Jackson, the vocal leader, right. turned the switch on this team. Sorry, I just don't buy it. Mm-hmm. I buy that the play calling was different and they were more able to be explosive in the second half because they were faster. Uh, Lamar Jackson, shorter time to throw, much shorter than it was in the first half. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that I think we're going to end up settling for. If we don't have people who go to these games and who ask the questions, what really happened at halftime? And that was, I think, to bring it back around to SI, the thing that SI loyalists decry, and I should preface this by saying there are still good writers at Sports Illustrated. There are still good things that are being published by Sports Illustrated. But what is most disappointing for fans of what the magazine used to be is the magazine did not go down fighting. It it gave up. I mean, the New Yorker is... The New Yorker is a great magazine, and the New Yorker is also having financial trouble. But the New Yorker is is fighting the fight on its own terms. It continues to be an excellent, vibrant, relevant weekly magazine. And SI, just even though it was profitable as recently as six years ago when I wrote that piece in The Ringer about the demise of Sports Illustrated, it was still profitable then. And rather than continuing to do what it did best – it just it just wound up giving ground and giving ground. And so now it's just a caricature of what it once was. And we don't get those pieces. We don't get a great story with great pictures about that scintillating Buffalo-Kansas City game on Sunday yeah. night. And, you know, the other point I made to you is 50 years from now, when people come back and look at what was the world of sports like in 2024, where are they going to go? They're going to go see some videos on YouTube, and then they've got they've got a hope that those web pages in The Ringer and NBC Sports 
and all the other websites you go to for sports news, you got to hope those web pages are still alive because if not, stuff just gets lost. That's the thing probably that bothers me the most. I can't even, I can't find the early days of my Monday morning quarterback column anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the late nineties and the first 10 years of this decade, Mm -hmm. I can't find them. And that's the way life goes. I listen, Michael, I, when I wrote for the magazine, I mean, I thought about this much later in my career. I never even saved my covers. (laughs) I, I just, that wasn't in my, I just, I love the job. I didn't look at the job like, oh, let me save this and let me put this on the wall. Let me do that. It just, that was just not a part of why I did it or what made me excited. Um, But I think I would say one other thing about the demise of SI. And, And you mentioned it. We just saw... One of the great games, I think, in I mean, I think two weeks in a row, mm-hmm. we've seen two incredible games. Detroit twenty four, Rams twenty three was a great game. Yep. And uh, this game, another three point game uh, or another close game, excuse me. This one uh, by a field goal was a fantastic football game. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't read Sports Illustrated. We don't read with perspective, whether it would be, let's say, Greg Bishop or or one of the, you know, any number of people who are still there who or who could do it. Michael Rosenberg, uh, Connor Orr. <laughs> we don't get it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think it's a big miss. Mm-hmm. It's a loss. Yeah. Uh, all right, Michael, I got one other question for you. Yes, and that sir. involves your Kansas City football franchise. For those who don't know, uh, Michael is quite a Chiefs follower. And I wondered, first of all, I'm really curious about what you thought when you were watching this game and this team over the last two weeks has really kind of become kind of revived on offense mm-hmm. versus what they were even three, four, five weeks ago. And also, I wonder what you thought watching that for Tyler Bass and the city of Buffalo. Well, um, you know, I was there for the 1995 playoff game in Arrowhead when Lynn Elliott missed all those field goals. So I know yeah. what it's like to have a season suddenly end. Um, Buffalo Bills, great franchise, great quarterback, great fans. Um, but I've been on the other side of that as well. I thought the uh, I thought the Chiefs had a good chance to win. I thought they were uh, peaking at the right time. Um, the offense has been streamlined really since uh, after that horrible Christmas loss to the Raiders. Um, the Cincinnati game the week after, and then they rested their starters for the final regular season game, and then the two playoff games. Chiefs are scoring on like 75% of their drives. They're becoming real efficient. Um, So, yeah, I think they're peaking at the right time. Now, whether they can come out of that epic game Sunday night and then beat the Ravens again on the road next week remains to be seen. But, um, you know, they're still the champions. As the saying went in the wire, if you come at the king, you best not miss. I, I would, I, I have to ask you because I actually thought of you walking out of the locker room on Sunday night when I left Andy Reid and the only guy who was left in there, I stopped and said hello to him was Harrison Butker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually thought of you walking back up to the locker room because I said, Michael McCambridge is going to love the fact that Andy Reid, on the morning of a huge yes. football game, takes out a moleskin journal mm-hmm. and in red rollerball, writes in cursive, mm-hmm. extremely neat 
cursive about how he thinks the game is going to go. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, Michael McCambridge is really going to like that little factoid. I, and I loved it. And I could just picture Andy Reid sitting there and, and, and having that moment and collecting his thoughts. And it's, you know, one of the many reasons he's been so successful for so long. Michael McCambridge, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And uh, oh, and by the way, have one other quick SI thing. Yes. I have, because we live in this sort of society now, I had a bunch of email this week that said Sports Illustrated died because it got woke. And <laughs> I started to think to myself, you have no idea about the business world. This has nothing to do with somebody saying that he doesn't like Donald Trump who works for Sports Illustrated. I believe some but, people said the NFL was going to fail because it got woke, but how's that going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a, that is a great point. Hey, well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. All right, Peter, keep up the good work. Really enjoy reading you every Monday. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Michael. Much appreciated. Take care. ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My thanks to Michael McCambridge. Really some good insights on the downfall of SI. And I'm happy that he chose to spend some time uh, with us on the podcast this week. A lot of people wondering what exactly went down with SI. And, you know, as I said to him... <coughs> You know, I've had a lot of people say, ah, you know, woke politics got to SI. Everybody, you know, given their political opinions, look, you know, it says absolutely nothing to do with wokeness. This has to do with the fact that printed publications are in gigantic trouble. And there aren't a lot of people anymore who pay to read four days later a nice story with nice pictures about a big game that happened over the weekend. It's sad. I am sad about the whole thing. But uh, as I wrote in my column, it is life. And nothing is forever in our business anymore. And I don't mean to sound maudlin, but man, I'm just going to miss. I've missed it for years now because it just hasn't been the same. They went to bi-weekly and then monthly. But anyway... Let's go on to the championship games. Miles, I want to start in Baltimore first. That's the first game, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Kansas City at Baltimore. Set the stage for you. The last time there was an AFC championship game in Baltimore was the first time, meaning the first AFC championship game in January 1971. The two leagues, the AFL and NFL, had just merged, and the Baltimore Colts at that time played at Memorial Stadium, a neighborhood ballpark in the city. Uh, and when that game ended, the Baltimore Colts had won the game. They beat John Madden's Oakland Raiders. And I looked up this game the other day, and it's so interesting. John Unitas, quarterback, University of Louisville, passes the torch. Lamar Jackson, the next time there's a conference championship game at home. Lamar Jackson, quarterback, University of Louisville. My other fun thing about this game in 1971, that Unitas threw one touchdown pass that day. The recipient, Ray Perkins. And for those of you who love football, you know that, man, I thought Ray Perkins was a coach. Well, he was a coach, but he used to be a long time ago, a nifty little split end 
catching passes. Not a lot of them, but some for Johnny Unitas. So, Miles, tell me when I when I hit you with this game, tell me a factor or two that you think it comes down to. When you think about this game, when it hits you, what will decide who wins and loses? Well, is Baltimore's defense going to force Kansas City's offense into mistakes? And you know, we've seen throughout the course of the regular season that Kansas City's offense is mistake prone. And I think we've also seen by that same token that Baltimore's defense is so fundamentally sound that they will force teams into mistakes. Right? I, I can't get the image of Kyle Hamilton like swatting up a pass, Deshaun Watson's first yeah. pass against Cleveland out of my mind and he returns it for six. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Baltimore's defense can do to you. But one of the fun things I think about this is that we've got number 15 on the other side. So it's not like, you know, you're just saying, Oh man, what is this matchup going to be in that? Like, this is somebody who has proven time and time again, that he can do what needs to be done in a postseason setting in order to get his team across the finish line. So I'm looking forward to that particular matchup. Like how does Baltimore's defense look to attack Patrick Mahomes and that offense? And what are they trying to take away the most? Because if it's Travis Kelsey, yeah, that makes sense. We'll see if Rice can step up, if Aldis Scantling can potentially step up again, and if the run game can step up. But if they're trying to stop the run game, which I think that they would probably want to do, right, with Pacheco, and then say, well, Mahomes, are you going to be on target and are your receivers going to be able to catch the ball? That's still kind of an open question, especially going on the road, Peter. Yeah, I'll tell you, I think that Lamar Jackson is going to get his points. He's going to get his yards. He'll probably rush for 100. We we talk about that like it's nothing, but in his five playoff games, he's done it three times, even though he hasn't been great, basically, in four of those games. Uh, I thought he was really good in the second half of this game. But I think what I look at <laughs> as a huge factor in this game is – excuse me, is whether the Kansas City offense can be run through uh, Isaiah Pacheco. Mm. And obviously, look, two playoff games, 186 rushing yards, 4.8 a carry. He is doing exactly what they want him to do during the season, 4.6 a carry. And... I look at this game and I say, look, the Ravens are really a difficult team uh, to play against. However, you know, with that, with that, uh, with that defense, but they allowed four and a half yards a, a, a carry this year, and that's not great. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing, I, I, I would be worried of trying to make my living with Mahomes throwing it 38 times. I think this is Isaiah Pacheco's game for uh, for Kansas City, and I will be surprised if he doesn't get 25 touches. Very surprised. Because, first of all, if you're Kansas City, you want to chew the clock, okay? If you're Kansas City, it's really, really important to limit Lamar Jackson's possessions. So to me, I kind of think this is an Isaiah Pacheco game, Miles Simmons. Yes, I, I do too. I mean, it should certainly be an Isaiah Pacheco game. I mean, I I think that he has been the most reliable player for them on offense, uh, in, aside from Patrick Mahomes, most reliable skill player. And, you know, I think he's shown time and time again that he is the guy that should be getting the carries down near the goal line and not, Hardman because he is going to yes. get the ball into the end zone on his feet. He's not going to extend the ball over the goal line and then potentially send it out of bounds. I don't think he's going to be trying that again. I um, doubt it. Miles, I I think I kind of like Kansas City, but I, I I think I said this to somebody this week. What if if you told me that the Ravens were going to get 11 possessions 
in this game, I would mm-hmm. say the Ravens are not losing this game. Yeah, I think it matters how many times they get the ball, whether they're able to win the battle of the clock. Uh, those are the things I think are important. Um, so I'm fascinated by this game. I think it's really good. Let's move 3,000 miles to the west. And I think there's no game in the NFL that I think of when I think, man, it's a long season, more than this game. And let me explain why. I think in the course of a season, you look at the calendar and it's, you know, from the start of the season to the end, it's only five months. It's shorter season than baseball, basketball, hockey. But those five months, they can each have about four seasons (laughs) in them. Because I, I think, I mean, let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's look at this. The Detroit Lions, they start off really emotional, big win at Kansas City. They're mostly good during the course of the year. But holy cow, did they get their rear ends handed to them when they played in Baltimore. Yeah. And, you know, they had ups, they had downs, they have the, the Dallas game and all that. But now they're in the postseason, and they have had two emotionally charged uplifting games they've scored 55 points uh, against two good teams and they come in and i think they're going to come in and play well on the other hand the 49ers i mean the 49ers after five weeks i they beat the cowboys 42 to 10 and i said man this is the best team in football i don't know that it's close and then they go on a three-game losing streak Brock Purdy starts to be a little shaky as a bad end in the loss at Minnesota. <clears throat> so, you know, you're a little bit shaky on it. But then they start winning again. But at the end of the year, Baltimore just hands them their lunch. And then Brock Purdy doesn't play very well in the playoff game, uh, you know, in the divisional round. So uh, both of these teams have had three or four seasons kind of jammed into one. And 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 I think I think the 49ers are going to play well in this game. But you have to think that Kyle Shanahan has started to think, you know, I wonder if the bloom is coming off the rose a little bit with with Brock Purdy. And I still think that Brock Purdy is really good and he's going to be a good quarterback for this team. But he simply has to play a little better, and he can't be missing some of the throws uh, that he's missed going back to the Baltimore game and obviously against Green Bay. I think one of the things that Kyle Shanahan's got to do as a play caller is just get Brock Purdy very comfortable early. And, uh, you know, we talk about getting guys involved in the game plan, kind of uh, like a receiver, for instance, right? You know, you want to get them some early touches so that they just get in rhythm and they get their mind in it and all this stuff. I mean, I, I think I would want to do that with Brock Purdy. You know, I think he's shown that he is still a young quarterback. I think he has played at a very high level in an offense that can make it easier for quarterbacks. But look, last week was not good, aside from that last drive. Just wasn't, right? And, and the earlier touchdown to Kittle. You have to be more consistent. And I guess one way to do that is to give Brock Purdy just some of those early, easy reads easy throws get them in rhythm you know don't have him drop back too far and have to look down just like just drop back and get the ball out of his hand and then as you go on in the game maybe it gets more comfortable and he can start making some better off schedule plays as we've seen him be able to do or take some of those deep shots but it's not going to be easy because this is a Detroit defense where at the number the raw numbers may not show it but they match up very, very well. And I think what they did to the Rams in the red zone, especially in that opening round of the playoffs this season, tells you a lot about what they can do defensively. So, yeah, this is a really interesting matchup. And Brock Purdy is going to need to play really, really well for Detroit to win. Excuse me. Goodness gracious. If he plays really, really well, Detroit's going to lose. If he plays really, yeah. really well, San Francisco is going to have that good shot to win. So I'll give you my one other factor in this game. And the other, the other factor that I think is significant in this game 
is that if you look at Jared Goff and his career against the 49ers, so Jared Goff has played eight playoff games, has not faced the 49ers uh, in a single one yet. But the 49ers, over time, have really gotten to know Jared Goff well. Now, obviously, 21, 22, and 23, uh, Jared Goff has been uh, in another division with Detroit, so they don't see him twice a year. However, you know, as you look at both of these teams and their history together, he's only played the 49ers one time since he was since he's been in Detroit. And bizarrely, that's his first game as a member of the Lions. Uh, Detroit played San Francisco at Ford Field opening week in 2021. The Niners won the game, but Goff had a prolific game. He threw the ball 57 times. But before then, before then, he had some rough days against uh, against the 49ers. And the 49ers, now Steve Wilkes obviously wasn't there as the coordinator, but he's thrown some picks. He's had some okay games, and he's had some games where he has really, really struggled, and I think probably some games that convinced uh, Sean McVay maybe we should uh, get rid of him. And in fact, he lost, uh, when you look at the Rams 49ers matchups, he lost his last four games as a Rams quarterback to the 49ers. So they know him very, very well. And I think for guys like Dre Greenlaw, for Fred Warner, uh, for Nick Bosa, they have seen this movie before. They understand how to play him. I think that could be a bit of a hidden edge in this game. You think it matters? I, I do think it matters, Peter. You know, when you're a head coach and you've gone against somebody in your division for as long as Kyle Shanahan did with Jared Goff, it certainly makes a difference because you understand the kinds of throws that he can make and the kinds of throws he likes to make and, you know, where his eyes might start to drift in certain situations. I, I think that that is kind of a big deal. I mean, it's interesting. You know, the, the Rams generally had not beaten the 49ers in the regular season from uh, the end of to the 2018 season until just the end of this season when Carson Wentz actually started the game and ended up winning yeah. and getting the Rams that six seed. So the Rams in general have not had much success against San Francisco over the last few years, aside from that 21 uh, NFC championship game. But looking at this now, I think that be not just it's not just them that know Goff, right? Goff understands the principles and the general idea of what San Francisco wants to do as a defense under head coach Kyle Shanahan. Now, again, you know, Steve Wilkes is not the same as a D'Amico Ryans or um, as uh, uh, the Robert Sala, who's now obviously the Jets head coach. So there are some differences there, but you still got four down linemen. You know, you still got a lot of the same personnel that he's familiar with. So there are things there where maybe the edge cancels itself out. But I, I do think that that familiarity between the quarterback and the opposing team does matter. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think one of the other things that I think on the one hand, the experience against him is one thing. But I think on the other hand, Jared Goff has shown the last two weeks that let's not try to write his story based on what happened three and four and five years ago. Yeah, he true. has been incredibly impressive in huge moments, especially against Matthew Stafford. What what must that have felt like? And obviously, you know, against the Bucks, putting up thirty one points. So that to me is is a really really interesting uh, game, and it's it's gonna. I think both of these games come down to the two minute warning. I don't think either one. Uh, I, I don't think either one is going to be one of those that I look at to say uh, this is going to be 38 to 19. I think they're both really close. Miles, really appreciate you joining me this week. We cranked another podcast out. Yeah. You are a wonderful co-host, a mensch, and all those other 
nice things that I can say about you. We'd like to thank Michael McCambridge for joining us on the pod this week to talk about Sports Illustrated. And enjoy the games this weekend. We'll be back with another podcast, another episode of the Peter King Podcast next week. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.